Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is a well-established fact that music comes in many different types of cycles. A sound and style will be big for a while, reach a peak with the public, and then slowly fade out. But once established, it's highly unusual for a sound to completely disappear, never to be heard from again. The only genre I can really think of at this point is um, maybe alt-rock style rockabilly? It was really big in the very early 80s with bands like the Stray Cats, but then it just kind of went away. And there's never really been a rockabilly revival, at least in the alt-rock sense, and with the style and scope of what we heard way back then, when it was huge for about 18 months. It still exists in certain corners, but it's never really had a full-blown revival. Instead, what we've seen, rockabilly aside, after enjoying a time at the forefront of music, many of the cycle-prone rock sounds recede into the shadows, never really go away, lying in wait until someone comes along, often a generation or two later, to rediscover and reactivate it. And when that happens, it's usually given a sonic update. And if the timing is right, the sound enjoys a new period of time in the sun before the cycle repeats itself yet again. The longer you live and the more music you become familiar with, the more you begin to see these cycles play themselves out, sometimes over and over again. And we see it every decade. The 2010s were no different. We saw a series of revivals and rediscoveries and comebacks, all based on the musical DNA of what had come before. Let's examine that. This is the history of the 2010s, part four. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and for this fourth installment of our look back on the alt-rock of the 2010s, We're going to look at some of the sounds that rebounded, got recycled, were rediscovered, and otherwise reborn throughout the decade, driven by generations of musicians who mined the past for inspiration and influence. First, though, I want to talk about comebacks. After a brief hiatus early in the decade, the monsters of rock from the previous decades came roaring back. We saw albums from Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, Radiohead, Green Day, Alice in Chains, ACDC, Metallica, Nine Inch Nails, and David Bowie. Going deeper, Blink-182, Green Day, Coldplay, Jack White, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Slipknot, Queens of the Stone Age, Pearl Jam, Foo Fighters, U2, Linkin Park, Fall Out Boy, Evanescence, Queens of the Stone Age, and Bowie all had number one records over the course of the decade. And while hip-hop was the dominant cultural force in many territories around the world, We discussed that on an earlier episode. Rock was still doing well in terms of overall consumption. That meant records sold, songs streamed, and videos watched. But if we add in concert tickets sold, rock remained the most consumed genre in many countries around the planet, including Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Now, of all the acts I just mentioned, there was no bigger and no more anticipated comeback than what we saw with Tool, who ended a gap between albums that lasted 13 years, five months, and three days. 
To put it another way, when Tool released the 10,000 Days album back in 2006, the iPhone hadn't been released yet. Google had yet to buy YouTube, and MySpace was still very much a thing. Why the delay? Well, there were legal issues, distractions with other projects, and mostly a lot of second-guessing within the band. Eventually, though, we did get the Fear Inoculum album on August 20th, 2019. Seven songs running over 79 minutes, and it was all very good. And yes, it was a number one album. Here's a sample of the 10-minute-plus title track. Great stuff from Tool's comeback record, Fear Inoculum. They continue to be one of the more interesting rock acts from the pre-internet era. And speaking of which, the biggest rock bands in the world were still those who managed to establish careers with many big hits before the internet came along and disrupted everything. They still have the ability to fill arenas and amphitheaters and sometimes stadiums. And since 2000, very few new rock acts relatively speaking, when compared to the olden days, have emerged who can do the same thing. Baby boomers and Gen Xers continue to fuel these massive tours while continuing to buy non-insignificant numbers of albums. The comebacks that we saw in the 2010s were an extremely important part of the health of the recorded music industry, also the touring industry, and you know what? Music in general. Let's now turn to some revivals. The trippy sounds of psychedelic or psych rock was born in the 1960s and was quite the thing until sometime in the 70s when it fell out of favor. Psych never really went away. Elements could be heard in parts of the Paisley Underground and the Madchester scene of the early 80s, as well as the rave rock of the 1990s and whatever the Flaming Lips were doing. But it was certainly a niche genre for a very long time. Yet in the 2010s, psych saw a resurgence. We saw artists like Ariel Pink, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Temples, The Black Angels, Unknown Mortal Orchestra, Animal Collective, War on Drugs, and Mac DeMarco. One of the most successful of this new group of psych artists was Tame Impala, the project of Australia's Kevin Parker. After getting started with a few releases in the aughts, Kevin and Tame Impala broke through with an album completely recorded in his home studio. It was called Lonerism, and this single helped the record get nominated for Best Alternative Album at the 2012 Grammy Awards. Adjacent to Psych was a minor revival with Shoegaze, the loud, fuzzy sound that had its moment in the early 1990s. Shoegaze seemed to be done by the end of that decade, but there were adherents who refused to give up on that sound. By the 2010s, there was a thriving Shoegaze underground, nothing that was ever going to threaten the charts, but its impact was there. There were club nights, plenty of action on social media, and a number of new record labels, mostly British, that were formed to help feed the scene. Some techniques were absorbed by other genres like black metal, creating a sound known as black gaze. There was something out of Japan known as art school shoegaze, and some emo groups, which we'll get into in a bit, also incorporated elements into their music. Well, there were Engineers, a British band who had been working with these sounds since at least 2003. M83, the French group, saw some success. 
The pains of being pure at heart, a place to bury strangers, and School of Seven Bells were also part of this, well, let's call it a semi-revival. Here's another. Besnard Lakes are from Montreal, and in April 2013, they released an interesting album entitled Until In Excess Imperceptible UFO, which was shortlisted for the Players Music Prize that year. Let's sample that. This is called People of the Sticks. From shoegaze, it's only really kind of a short jump to emo. It had its moments early in the century with bands like Dashboard Confessional and Save the Day, Thursday, Story of the Year, Taking Back Sunday, and My Chemical Romance. But by the early 2010s, emo had begun to wane as fans grew up and moved on and bands broke up. Alexis on Fire went away. My Chemical Romance disappeared. Fall Out Boy moved away from their original emo sound, as did Paramore and Panic at the Disco. So for a while, it looked like emo was done. Turns out that this was only a pause. By the middle of the 2010s, there were signs of a strong emo revival. Alexis on Fire returned. By the end of the decade, My Chemical Romance was back. There was a new generation of groups exploring the genre. And was there more of a 90s bent to this revival? Well, maybe, but it was certainly still emo. This is from one of the newer emo bands. It's a group from Connecticut called The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. And this is from a 2015 album entitled Harmlessness. It's called Mental Health. Back with more of our look at revivals in the 2010s in just a second. This is part four of a five-part series looking back on what happened with rock and alt-rock in the 2010s. And the focus this time is largely on revivals, sounds and scenes that returned to our attention over the course of this decade. Prog rock was born in the late 1960s and early 70s and was a big deal until punk came along and tried to wipe it out. Back then, rock got increasingly more complicated, really because it could. Musicians became better at their instruments. Virtuosity became a thing. New equipment allowed for new sounds, and recording studios installed ever more sophisticated gear. But then it all kind of fell apart as the next generation, the punks and the new wavers, thought that rock had become too bloated, too inaccessible, too elitist, too complicated. But in the 2010s, that style of rock saw a comeback. Now, to be fair, we saw a fair amount of what was known as math rock in the aughts. This was complicated, complex, hard to play, and impossible to dance to rock, inspired by masters like Rush and King Crimson and Yes. The 2010s saw the rise of a new type of progressive rock called Degent, which we discussed on a previous episode. There were also bands looking to really stretch things. You knew you were in for some really complex math rock when one of the guitars pulled out an axe with eight or nine strings on it. Another term that we could use for this might be post-progressive. We've already talked about Tool and the Math Rocky approach, but then there were those who studied more recent acts, incorporating their ideas with various approaches to Indian metal. The result wasn't so much as a defined sound, but an attitude and an approach to instruments and arrangements. This was a big tent, including everyone from Biffy Clyro to Dance Gavin Dance to the Mars Volta. And amongst all of them was Radiohead, with their experimental ways, always trying to stay ahead of the curve. 
They released two albums during the decade, King of Limbs in 2011 and A Moon-Shaped Pool in 2016. Let's hear something from that. This is Burn the Witch. Another genre that saw something of a return in the 2010s was the various forms of metal and metal-adjacent music. We've already talked about how some of the heavy bands of the past saw renewed success. Soundgarden, Metallica, Iron Maiden, ACDC, and so on. Even 60% of Guns N' Roses reunited against all odds for the Not In This Lifetime tour, which grossed nearly 600 million U.S. dollars over 158 shows played between 2016 and 2019, making it the fourth most profitable tour of all time to that point. That was easily the biggest rock comeback of the decade. This is worth pointing out again. Music is now far more cross-generational than it's ever been. If you went to a Metallica show or a gig by Soundgarden or any of those other bands, the audience spanned a wide range of ages, ranging from gray hairs to preteens. Now, generation gaps in music still exist. Some people will never listen to their parents' or older siblings' music. But now, more than ever, it's very common for a parent and their child to share a love for the same music, the same act. And that's something we'll look at a little more in depth in our next episode on how tech affected music. Thrash metal did okay, although not as well as what we saw in the 80s and the 90s. Metallica led the way again with one album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, and a tour that brought in almost 450 million US dollars. The other members of the so-called Big Four, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax, also had albums that reached the top 10. And we can say that we saw a thrash metal revival with bands like Municipal Waste, Power Trip, and Warbringer. But none of the bands involved were able to reach anywhere close to the same heights as the big four. Alternative metal, or alternative hard rock if you prefer, was definitely a thing in the 2010s. And this is where we run into Soundgarden and Alice in Chains again. Plus, we saw comebacks from older groups like Jane's Addiction, Biohazard, and Faith No More, to name a few. And along those lines were some new young bands clearly inspired by old-school classic rock. We talked about Greta Van Fleet on a previous episode. They rated their parents' classic rock record collection for their inspiration. We should also bring in Baltimore's Turnstile. And we should also pay attention to The Struts, a British band brought up on Queen, Aerosmith, Oasis, The Killers, and The Rolling Stones. This is from their 2018 album, Young and Dangerous. It's called Body Talks. You can be cool! Another genre that saw a brief surge in the 2010s was pop punk, although it was nowhere near as popular as what we saw in the 90s, which was the first wave, and in the aughts, the second wave. Yet it never really went away. The big heritage acts were still there, you know, Offspring, Blink-182, Sum 41, Simple Plan, and they kept the spirit alive. And if you were inclined to look, you would have also found some interesting culty bands who plumbed pop punk styles and occasionally took things a little harder, and then also maybe added a little garage rock to the mix. Some examples included Waves, Bass Drum of Death, Ty Siegel, and Toronto's Pup. They released three albums during the decade. In 2019, they offered up a record called Morbid Stuff, which featured this song called Kids. Kids. 
In a moment, we'll look at two more genres that made gains in the 2010s, and both are among the oldest genres in the history of alt-rock. There were two more revivals we need to talk about before we wrap up episode four of our examination of the 2010s. The first is punk. Now, punk never goes away. That attitude and aesthetic has been with us for nearly 50 years, and it cannot be killed, and it will not die. Every generation since the 70s has discovered punk and made it its own, as artists adopt a fierce do-it-yourself ethic. In fact, I think that DIY ethic has become stronger since technology democratized and decentralized all of music. Back in the day, you might have had a record label of some sort to help promote and market you. But now there's so much competition and so much noise out there that you have to work harder than ever to get noticed. Plus, there's a sense that no one's going to help you, so well, you might as well do it yourself. There's also the sense in some quarters that punk needs to be torn down and rebuilt, reclaimed from the so-called corporate punk, exemplified by Blink-182, Sum 41, and The Offspring. However, at the beginning of the decade, it did look kind of bleak. Pop-punk and emo had faltered and dropped out of fashion. But by the time we get to the middle teens, things had picked up a bit. Was this the product of the political situation with Donald Trump in the U.S. and the Tories and Brexit in the U.K.? Maybe. If there's a way to categorize that mid-decade revival in punk, it would perhaps be garage punk and post-punk. This isn't pure 70s-style punk or 80s hardcore or even 90s punk revival, but there was no way this music could exist if it had not been for those previous eras. There was a wide variety of approaches, from Laura Jane Grace and Against Me to the Riot Girl sensibilities of the reformed Slater Kinney to the grinding sound of Japan droids, to the intensity of effed up and the stoner feel of parquet courts and the working-class rage of idols and Sleaford mods. Punk has long since eclipsed being just a sound. This is an attitude. This is an outlook. This is an aesthetic. It is a way of life. And if I had to pick out a favorite punk or punkish record from the decade, it might be Dog Roll from Dublin's Fontaine's DC. Purists may disagree. But I sure hear plenty of punk in their presentation. If you're a rock star, porn star, superstar, doesn't matter what you are, get yourself a good car, get out of here. Yeah. Put the boys in the better line. You're always talking about the boys in the better line. There's one final revival from the 2010s I got to talk about, and that is ska. Like punk, ska never ever goes away. It ebbs and flows, it mutates and evolves, but it is always there. There have been four distinct waves of ska since the style was born in Jamaica in the 1950s. Those originators, Desmond Decker, Toots and the Maytals, the Scatolites, and so on, all from Jamaica, comprised that first wave. The second wave came largely from England in the late 1970s and early 80s when it was crossbred with punk. Third wave ska arrived in the 1990s. No Doubt, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Sublime, Real Big Fish, Goldfinger, Dancehall Crashers, and so many more. The fourth wave arrived late in the 2010s and bled over into the new decade. It didn't explode like we've seen in the past. At least not yet, but it is definitely happening. Examples of fourth wave ska include bands like Captain Ska, a group that had a top five single in the UK in 2017. In North America, ska has bubbled underground in places like Los Angeles and Mexico City. If you're into the scene, you might know about the Steady 45s, Los Agrotones, and of course, the Interrupters. They became the first female-fronted ska band to have a major hit since, uh, no doubt.
On the final episode of this look at music of the 2010s, we're going to check out how technology continued to upend everything. Tech and music have become so intertwined that we often don't realize how one affects the other and what profound changes this relationship has created for fans. We'll talk about things like music videos, social media, streaming, vinyl, even dating apps. All shall be explored on part five of our history of the 2010s. Meanwhile, you should get caught up on parts one through three. All of them are available as podcasts wherever you get yours. Plus, there are hundreds and hundreds of other ongoing history shows to download. Grab them all. If you need to talk, there's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every day. It comes complete with a free seven days a week newsletter. There's also Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, threads, and direct contact can be made through alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.